Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Eating Crow with Pete Durand. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Eating Crow podcast. I'm excited to have Steve Schmidt join us today from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Is that correct? That is correct. The one and only. So I, you had an interesting post about a year ago where you described about this is not North Dakota and we're far away from everything here. Yeah. If you think about um, South Dakota, it's equidistant from both coasts. And so like we truly are like the middle of the West because we get considered in the square states. And I only know that it's called the square states because we literally called that our territory at AT&T. If your state's square, you're in the Midwest. If you look at like Kansas on up, they're all square and go to Illinois to the right. They're all starting to be, you know, more top to bottom, more. uh... Yeah. So it's interesting, man, but it's, I, there's 200,000 people in the city I live in, Peter. And I know, I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but I think the thing is, well, that's a decent sized town. Half the town works in healthcare. Over 110,000 employees work at one of two of the hospitals here. And about another 20,000 work in call centers. So if you're really looking at, call it the entrepreneurial, call it B2B, you know, everybody's into tech and SaaS online. Like it's almost non-existent here, but there are three or four companies that, you know, they've gotten their first round of funding. They're taking off. There's a company out of North Dakota called Bushel, and they're an $84 million company. and They've never taken funding. Wow. And what brought you to, I mean, were you born there? How did you end up there? Born and raised in a little bedroom community out of here and then um, ended up coming back here five years ago, met the girl I took to my seventh grade sweetheart dance and ended up getting married with her. So I, I never left. Seventh grade sweetheart dance. That's awesome. Hallmark movie, like the worst kind of Hallmark movie you can imagine. By the way, my wife will be watching that this Christmas. She's a Hallmark connoisseur. I told her I'll, I'll watch one a week with her. That's my commitment. You're a good man for doing that. You truly are. Well, it, they recycle all the same actors, so she knows which one I'll watch and which one I won't. <laughs> well, Hallmark, uh, like it's a little fuzzy when you watch it. It's like everything, you know, because the 80s and the 90s movies are big on drama and all that sure. stuff. And so whether it's a man loves a woman or this, I'm like, I'm always just like, okay, here we go. The week before Christmas, it's just going to be me watching Die Hard and the, the females in my house watching Hallmark in the other room. And I'm okay with that. Yeah, it is. It's a uh, lather, rinse, repeat. Same script, different setting every time. So uh, now that we've got the important stuff, Die Hard and Hallmark. By the way, Die Hard is a Christmas movie. It is. It is. Because they have a wreath in it. Let's settle that for... (laughs) Not the language, but everything else is a Christmas movie. So, you know, Steve, I was drawn into your content like, by the way, a lot of people are. But I'm drawn into it for a couple different reasons. You are one of the more pointed, challenging people about sales and the sales process on LinkedIn. I mean, you, you just call it like you see it. I love the message. It's spot on. But we talked this morning and, and something stood out to me when we were uh, discussing kind of your transition from title into CellX. You made a, a statement. You said, look, I'm a number two guy. That's where I shine. And it was like instant, like this is where I need to be. And when I watched the, the I watched you tease the acquisition of title. And then when it was announced that you came into this role, Describe for us, because this shows for leaders and entrepreneurs, and it's good for people to understand that your role as a leader and entrepreneur can evolve. A lot of people start companies and don't stay in the leadership role. They evolve into a different role. So how did you guys process you stepping into this role? And what is it about your 
personality and skill set that makes you the number two guy? I think it's something I'm really glad I went through. Um, I don't know if it's like a Batman and Robin scenario. I, I thought about it too, Pete, after we talked, because my wife is also very, very much the boss of the house. In my personal life, I'm really used to kind of, you know, taking that that role, right? And so it's interesting because I think that naturally over the last four or five years, the thinking in my head is, oh, I've got to be a founder. I've got to be a CEO. I've got a great idea. And, and quite frankly, at the end of the day, I was the only one who was going to start that company. So by default, when you're when you're bootstrapped, you're really not going to go hire a CEO or call up you know you Pete and say, hey Pete, you want to come work for commission only? I mean, you're really working as an exercise of it was me, then it was five people, then it was twenty five, then fifty, mm-hmm. and so you really look at it. I thought I was great until month ten or twelve, and introducing now cash flow problems. Right? I wanted to um, in my next round, if I ever did it again, which I don't think I would. I would have a really good operator, mm-hmm. and I have a really good finance. Uh, person, because those are the two things that are my Achilles heels. Um, because I'm over here trying to develop more relationships, trying to align the departments, and back there is cash flow problems. So now those start to seep into your business, and then it's really not fun when you're running a business because on the outside looking in, and I posted about it quite a bit, like we're growing, we're growing. But if they would have seen me talking to my family, it would have been like, what do I do? How do I get a loan when you're a services company? How do you get funny and you don't? Like nobody wants to go to a services company where people are the product. Right. Because they know that people are people and we're, A, we're not repeatable, we're not scalable. And unless it's really manual labor work, there's not a repeatable thing. Picking up the phone and email and LinkedIn is not just, hey, Peter, you do it just like Steve. It's each person's really injecting themselves into the role and that can be good and bad. And so like we talked about, um, I'm having so much so much fun right now and it's primarily because i don't go home at night and think number one how are we going to do this sure number two i don't have to think about the fact that when it's your own money and you bootstrap something i could never depart from that and seeing somebody not work hard that day yeah knowing yeah that we needed them to and so I get upset and then you got a different view of people and that was really hard for me to cope with and i look at other ceos and if they need to trim, they trim. Yeah. If they need to add, they add. And they're really CEOs, I believe. The CEOs I've learned to really love working for are really good operators, are really good at looking at all of those, clearing the lane for you. And I've got that now, and I'm really, really happy. First of all, it's very, it's very self-aware to kind of find your sweet spot, right? And the other thing is, if I was talking to your CEO today, he's thinking, God, thank God Steve's over here doing this because that's not my bailiwick. Right. So if you can figure that out, it creates a pretty unique, successful situation. Yeah. My number one job every day, as I told Dean, I, I remind him of that every day. I literally text him today. I said, what can I do to make your day better? And he was like, I don't even know how to answer that question. <laughs> he goes, because nobody asked me that question. And I'm like, I never ask it. So I'm starting today. And, and, and I give him an update three times a week. And I said, if I can keep you informed keep you where where you want to be, then I'm doing my job. And now I know what it's like to be a CEO. And I know the stuff that's hitting your desk that nobody in the company's thinking about, nor should they really. And so I know he's busy doing that. And so when someone says, hey, Dean's calendar is busy from five to seven, I go, yeah. Yeah. Because Dean's out right now looking at venture capital partners, looking at our growth modeling, looking at the business, because I know when he calls me and we chat, he's definitely, he knows where the business is headed. He knows sort of the cracks in the creeks and, and and he can see it where I'm over here looking at, okay, we've got a revenue target. He's going, 
actually, let's trim back on that a little bit. Let's optimize internally because right now this is working, this isn't. So what do you think? And I'd be like, good observation. Yeah. Because sometimes it's easier to save money than make money. Because if you look at a $20,000 deal, Pete, on paper, everybody would go, man, I'd love to close a $20,000 deal. Well, if the deal costs you eighteen four to close it, and you're left with sixteen hundred, and then they Audi five thousand month three on a four month contract, you just lost six thousand. Yeah. And so those bad decisions, I'll just call them what they are. You know, you make four, five, six of those in a year. Holy smokes! You know, you think, oh, that's just forty two grand. Well, sure, it's just forty two grand. But now you've got a performance issue that's affecting other clients and the soft costs pretty soon. I added it up. And, and really just those fatal mistakes along the way that, you know, we didn't have to ever come to a, a bad ending. We came to a really good ending, right? Like the, you know, Celex is here now uh, because what we did was very good. Like the work we did was great. People would refer us all the time. LinkedIn was very kind to us. They continue to be, but you can't get yourself a little gap to say three months in the bank, right? They always say, put three months of payroll in the bank, three months operating expenditure. Man, we never had more than one. And, 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 and that was scary. It's really scary. Well, it's interesting that Dean knows you've been in his shoes, right? So as a, I've been a CEO for 15 years. And if somebody asked me the question, what can I do to make your day better? The flippant response would be, do your damn job. <laughs> right? If I just knew, Steve, you had sales covered, boy, that allows me to focus on other areas. And that's the thing is you're juggling. The way I describe being a CEO is I, get to have, I have the, the blessing of being able to go to bed every night with everyone's problems. And then the next day, wake up and having the opportunity to disappoint half of the people. It's just the way to look at it, right? Because somebody comes to me in, in, let's say, in operations and says, hey, Pete, this is a really big problem for me. It probably is the biggest problem on their plate. But guess what? I have five other people that just came to me with their problems. And then to your point, I got to figure out which one hurts the most. And sometimes I'm wrong. (laughs) And then everyone's disappointed. And those ones, you're right. You can have a couple of those and survive. You get two or three in a row, it's pretty tough because then you lose the, you lose your team, you lose money, you lose all sorts of things. It's also like you get people coming asking you for money to solve their problems too. So it's not just a problem, Pete. It's, hey, I need $40,000 because I found this great piece of software that's going to you know cure my ills. And you sit there and go, okay, what's the ROI? Have you tested it? Who else have you looked at? Do you have a ranking from top to bottom with a matrix that you use to score them? And they look at you like, what? I know this person. I've been friends with them forever. You're like, Exactly. Go talk to three other people, come back to me in two weeks and tell me how bad the problem is. Let's have an objective discussion with some data and, and let's make sure that, because by the way, I've done it. We've all done it. We all chase shiny objects, try to convince ourselves it's going to save the day. And then you realize, no, nah, it's just, it's kind of just a big shit turd. You know, I got to see through that. So that's probably one of my biggest things is trying to figure out how to surround my people who are very objective. I can be the cheerleader. That's part of my job as the CEO, set the direction of the tone, but I have to have people around me that draw me back down to, to the earth and say, hey, Pete. That sounds interesting, but here's reality of the numbers. What do we do? You know, Pete, you brought up something interesting, and I want to ask you, are you a people pleaser? My guess is no. I'll be honest. It was probably one of my weak weaknesses early on is I, I was probably more geared towards being a people pleaser to a default. And part of it is I'm a natural optimist, so I see the best in everyone. Trust everybody. So I, I'm rooting for you. I'm assuming you're going to get there. Yeah, I trust everybody. And I've been burned three times, three very costly times in my career. So I'm a little more cautiously, I tell you what, I set clear expectations and I validate with data. It just tends to make those tough discussions a little bit easier if everybody knows going in and coming out what's expected and, what, and what's going to happen if things don't perform. It's in simplest form, right? We can play human emotions, things, oh, this is why this didn't happen. I need this. And, and, and to your point, I think 
I'm tying it back to where I realize that the trait I don't have, that a CEO is, the CEO does not have to be a jerk. I think the CEO has to not be a people pleaser though, because for me, it's very easy in sales. That's my history to go, okay, we've got non-performers and performers. I know how to work with that. But the other areas that call it more gray, whether it's content creation or public relations. Sure. The best thing I heard was set metrics for everybody and bonus them accordingly. Meaning, yes. you know, your duties and then, you know, maybe the company's revenue, but maybe, right? If It's really like if your operating expenditures are the issue, like, okay, great. Then we can make that a common goal for everybody, but they need to understand how to control it, i.e., stop asking for new stuff, i.e., reduce existing footprints of software that has no usage. Um, go down that list, and, and then pretty soon you go, man, if I just eliminated $30,000 a month, I essentially just got the profit of three big deals. Exactly. And that's going to last every month, and I don't have to go do it over and over again. Now I can go clean slate. I can really isolate a problem. Once you see the problem leave, now you go, are there any other problems now that are exposed? Sure. And are they critical enough for me to put that as my number one? The best podcast I ever heard, can't remember what it was, Pete. It was a guy giving sales advice, and I love podcasts on long drives. He had said, he or she said, pardon me, I can't even remember. She said, you know, the interesting part is when people talk to a C-level, they think, well, this is a big deal. And it is a big deal, right? Because a CEO has got a lot of competing priorities. But she said, when she found out the best question to ask, which is, is this a problem? Is this a pain? All those little discovery questions we had was, where does this rank in your list of priorities? Because if it's not number one and maybe two, it ain't going to happen. Take it out of your funnel nurture it, see when it becomes number one. I mean, I think we get really hopeful going, hey, if you got a problem I can solve, and they go, yeah, cool. Well, I've got 42 other ones that are more important. Stand in line. And I think that's important. Um, I was just helping a buddy run a sales training for one of his clients. I'm a guest trainer for this his sales training business. And, and that was one of the biggest things we tried to have those teams understand is you've got to understand when a customer walks into a meeting with you, you have no idea what shaped their frame of mind before they got to the table with you. And what you think is the most important thing in the world, their cat could have died, their kid could have just failed a test, got cut from the soccer team, whatever it is. Or to your point, their boss has six other priorities in their plate bigger than this one. How do you help them solve that problem? And sometimes just acknowledging that you're not the most important thing in the room and you'll be here when it is, is instant credibility. We all love to think in sales that we can force a sale. We cannot force a sale. We have to be the best option at the time when that sale needs to happen. That's it. And you do that through content, value, building relationships. And you mentioned earlier, right? I I don't, uh, probably one of my weaknesses is I don't have a dick mode. I don't have asshole mode. I just don't have it. And it takes, my kids know, and some of, very few of my coworkers know I have three hot buttons, dishonesty, laziness, and I guess I'd call it meanness, right? I don't tolerate watching someone be mean to another person who is not in a position to stick up for themselves. I see that and that 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 lights me up. And, and I get dishonesty is number one and laziness is number two. You said this earlier, really important. When you started your company, we started Title and you were the, you were the only person and you had five employees. It took me a while. And an entrepreneur before me had told me this. I'd run other people's companies. I'd come in as the CEO for small businesses and grow them and scale them. When I started my own company, I was like, holy shit, they're right. I got it. And that's the fact that no one feels the same way you do about that business. And it's hard to remember that it's a job for them. It's your lifeblood for you. And you have to think in that lens before, like, why, why am I the only one here at 10 o'clock on a Friday night? Because our shipping labels were misprinted and I'm rerunning 300 of them myself. I had that experience and everybody went home and I'm like, well, you guys all have plans, but 
buck stops here. I got to do this. Now imagine if one of them would have stayed and not asked anything for it and what that would do to your perception of them. And I don't think they're always thinking that way. They're thinking it's Friday. I got to go home. This isn't my problem. I did a post about this. I always challenge people and, and, and the people that can answer this question to me are always people who've been an entrepreneur. I always say, can you name five people, five people that you could trust 100% to give them a task and have them come back and perform better than you asked them to, or number two, do something completely unexpected. Can you name five people that you believe could do that consistently? And people that have always worked in a large organization can't name five. They've never been in that position where they needed it. But as an entrepreneur, you will work your way through those people who you'd call every company you'd start from this point forward, Steve, you have five people you'd call and say, come work with me again. And there's just not a lot of them. Not a lot of people think the way you just described. I'm going to stay here on Friday night and help Steve finish this because it's the right thing to do. It's interesting. You see a lot of people posture, especially in small startups, right? They kind of, they come in really hot and excited, Pete. They come in with the dream. They come in with the, the idea that there's equity waiting for them, you know, and then they, they kind of realize it's minivan money is what they called it at outreach when I was there. It's, they said, you'll get, you'll get minivan money. And I was like, sounds good to me. It's better than zero, but like the, right. The dilution of equity, I can't remember where I saw this, but it said something like after the three years of cliffs that like your average entry to mid-level employee is going to get, um, 17% of employees are usually left by the time the first cliff actually happens. So obviously, yeah, you know that when you when you give the equity out, and that's part of this, but I think it's, to your point, that that job is not meant to make it ever feel like that. And I think if you think about running, right, and, and we get up and run, why do we have to run? Everybody runs for different reasons. Like I, I just ran for the first time in seven years the other day, and my reason was I just need to go out and see if I can still even run. And so, you know, I found out through an Apple, like, workout where it was egging me on. Like, I could get through it. It sucked, right? But did I go do it the next day? No. Why? Because it hurt. Uh, because I don't have enough pain. The doctors have told me yet, you know, hey, Steve, you should lose 25, 30 pounds or whatever it is, or you'll die from diabetes. That hasn't happened yet. But the second they say that, it becomes extremely personal to me because my entire life changes and I go, oh my God, you know, because that's what we see every time someone gets sick, um, which sucks, but it's just, it just happens. Now, an employee, you see this and all of a sudden, if I say, came to you and Pete, and if you were the, the person down the hall and I said, hey, Pete, out of nowhere, I want to give you a promotion. You're the CEO and I'm going to give you all that money you wanted. Good luck, Pete. You would you would probably look at me and not be excited. You go, I have no idea what to do. Mm-hmm. And I look at it like if I had to rewind my clock, what I would have done is actually pay attention to the CEOs I was working with and ask them, can I do this thing for you? Can I do that? Because I would have had a better, better well-rounded understanding of what the role is. And um, yeah, I think that's in retrospect. If I could give any advice to anybody listening, it's to still do it, right? Because I'm not even smart enough to say I won't do it again. But like I said to you earlier today, Pete, it's do it with the right people. As you mentioned, those five people, you have to get the right people from day one. You do. And, and you, you mentioned the urge to go run, right? And why you would do that. And you know, I ran a healthcare company, a wellness company for 10 years. And, and that was always my biggest challenge is just human behavior, right? Unfortunately, most, most of us, 80% of the population are not going to make a life change or lifestyle change unless you go see the doctor and he says, you're going to die in three years if you don't get your blood sugar down, or you've got to lose 50 pounds, or you're pre-diabetic. And even then, it's harder because if you've let those small habits and things leave your life, it's a big lift, right? And it's hard. And it's no different than leading a sales organization, right? If you don't enforce the right habits and metrics and behaviors and measure them as a process early on, by the time you walk into somebody's office and say, I'm going to put you on a PIP, 
It's too late. It's funny thing about pips. I always, when one of my leaders walks in and says, I'm going to put so-and-so in a pip, I always ask him, are you prepared for them to win? Like, what do you mean? Are you prepared for them to actually pull it off? Like, what do you mean? I go, don't put them on a pip just as an exercise to get them out of the company. You should have had this conversation with them two or three months. And by the way, maybe they did, right? Maybe you are at the point where a pip is the only thing. But I always root for the person that, that says, and you just did a post about this, right? You just did a post from, from PIP to, you know, from it, it's fantastic. And I've learned this myself. I'm at fault. There are people, again, I assume the best and trust people, but they still need training and education and mentorship. And sometimes I just make myself available to do it. But if you take the time, man, they respond really well. If you sit and listen and say, hey, here's some feedback. Are you willing to, to take it? They're normally like, yeah, tell me what I can do better. It's actually, uh, someone else had a post about it today. And I don't know if it, LinkedIn's algorithm caught me, but I looked at it and they said something about that, where they put somebody in a pip and they wish they would have done it sooner because that person ended up winning multiple winner circles. I think what they've said today, and this this doesn't make me a lot of friends, but I, we're soft today. Like we're very, very soft. I mentioned, throw, so throw some softness in the air with, you know, a likability, which I wanted to be liked and, you know, your people pleaser. And pretty soon you go, clear expectations, right? What are clear expectations? There's data and then there's clear expectations of, they're not going to change. Like the thing I said of this many of this a day makes us successful. And then if you look at a failing company, you just have to look at the levers and go, okay, finance is uh, there. You know, a good CEO is going to be able to look at that. And, and, and when they ask you in an interview, can you dissect a PL? A real CEO is going to, the CEO is going to, of course, say, yeah, I've done it. I've stayed up multiple nights trying to shift the columns of the formulas that never changed, but I can look at it and start to make assessments and assumptions that nobody else in the company is qualified to do. And that's a lot of pressure too, because sometimes it means uh, staff reduction. Sometimes it means this and that. But what it really means is if I'm, to your point, if I'm on month two, not three, and I'm not getting it, put me on a pip. Like put me on a pip because somebody pay attention to me. Now, what most companies do, Peter, and you know this, and you and I know this, it's it's either no pip at all and you're fired and um, especially startup companies because they haven't developed that process yet and, and it's just okay. Or it's, I didn't do it soon enough and therefore, to your point, you're putting the employee themselves at a default because to, the, the bad habits that they learned or the lack of no habits or the fact that they've already disengaged and they're moving on because you never really paid attention and said, sure, hey, here's what I need from you or hey, it's Friday. Did you get what I needed from you this week? Sometimes they just do want to have that stern discussion because at least you're paying attention to them. It's like kids. Even if you're scolding them, sometimes they go, hey, they're paying attention. Yeah. And by the way, that has to happen when they're really young. They don't know they need boundaries. And if you think you could you know, be the buddy and, and not discipline your kids from the time they're zero to six or seven, try to pull them back in when they're eight or nine after you haven't done it. It's impossible. You know, you got to start early. And you're right. Here's the funny thing. People are worried about disciplining their children, getting angry with them, upset with them, letting them know they broke a rule when they're young. But if you do that when they're young, your kids never remember that. I don't have any concept, but from up until five years old, my parents disciplined at all. What you do remember is if they haven't done that, and then everything after that becomes a battle, right? Where every confrontation is, is screaming and yelling between parents and children, and that's all they remember. And if they'd have done the work in the first five years, they wouldn't be in that situation. It's not all perfect. It doesn't work. The formula is not linear, right? It's There's all sorts of nuances to it. But yeah, it, the, the art of parenting, hell, the art of coaching, the art of leading, all those things, the art of living. By the way, all my kids play competitive sports. And what, what frustrates a lot of parents in this island is how coaches sometimes treat kids or ignore them or don't, you know, what, why isn't he playing? Is it, well, guess what? Most coaches at any level receive zero training 
zero training on how to lead and mentor young people. All the coaching, all the mentoring they get is, this is how you coach a soccer drill, or this is how you coach a football drill. They don't say, this is how you handle a 13-year-old boy or girl who's having a tough day. There's no coaching on that. Well, there's no coaching in business. There's no coaching in coaching. I mean, at least in like religious organizations, they have the seminary in some instances. So you got to get a degree before you can lead a congregation. Sure. Yeah. In sales, you know, the qualification usually is, hey, I really liked them. You know, they've got good energy. And you're like, really? That's so we should hire them because you liked them. They have good energy. Okay, good. That's good. Yeah. Because those people who have high energy and that's what you can say about them. I've not seen one succeed yet. Right. Because behind that thinly veiled insecurity of high energy is usually about a week's worth of like coming out strong. And a CEO goes, man, we made a great hire. And week two, you're like, hey, where'd that person go? And all of a sudden week three, they kind of tuck a little bit back. And that human element of we all come on strong, relationships, uh, aspirations, um, look at New Year's Eve, New Year's resolutions. We are infamous for Instagram inspiration in a world where not that many people are actually acting things out in real time, having tough conversations behind a closed door. I'm not saying just kids, everybody, everybody. My, my mom's more addicted to Facebook than my kids are. Yeah. And she's 72 because she communicates with her friends on there. And so... I'm just witnessing all this and Pete, we met on LinkedIn and, and, and there's that business can get done on LinkedIn. Relationships can get forged on LinkedIn. But until you, like when you finally meet that person, you give them a hug in the airport or wherever it is, then you go, sure. Yeah, this is the same, but now the depth of this relationship will climb to a new level. That's simply not attainable through only online interaction, right? If you start to build that relationship online and, 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 you know, and, and by the way, let's be honest, most of us put the best version of ourselves online. We're starting to see people a little bit more vulnerable, share some of their stories, how they got there. By the way, there's a post that went viral yesterday on LinkedIn. I'm not going to date the, the episode, but it was hilarious, right? It was by a CEO who was crying about laying off two people. And it was all about him and the sacrifice he had to make and how difficult it was. It was not about the two people he laid off. And he got fried, just fried. And there's the pitfalls, right? I've had only two episodes of my podcast where halfway through, I thought to myself, I'm not enjoying this because this person's clearly here just to plug themselves. Ah, that's the worst. It was terrible. And I've been very fortunate. 99% of my other episodes are people who, who feel like they've got a story they want to share. They want to learn. They And they end up in conversations just like we're having where people listening go, you know what? I, I've had that same situation Steve had. I didn't realize that about myself. Or yeah, I could do a better job You know, having those tough conversations behind closed doors. And I didn't realize it is difficult for people. But Maybe I'll reach out to Steve and ask him, how do you do that, Steve? What's your formula for having a tough conversation? Because a lot of people don't know how to do that. I wish when I first became a CEO 20 years ago, I knew what I know now because I didn't know Jack then. I didn't know anything about being a CEO. I had some good instincts. Maybe I was a good people person. I could raise money and do whatever, but there was a lot of weak spots in, in my being. And fortunately, I had some good people around me who, I'll tell you the biggest thing I lacked is there was a good period of time where I didn't have a solid mentor. I didn't have that person who could have the tough conversation with me behind closed door and say, hey, Pete, here's the things you are absolutely freaking screwing up and you got to fix them. And sometimes those conversations came a little too late. Well, your employees probably aren't going to tell you. They're going to talk about it behind closed doors. Or they're going to talk about it on Slack or wherever. Yep. Um, by the way, that post was, uh, my wife even came home and she doesn't really talk about LinkedIn. And she goes, can you believe? And I said, it's already up on Best of LinkedIn on Instagram. I don't know if you follow that site. Yeah. But once a day, they just shred a post for like that. Like, really, man? And a lot of them are funny. That one where you kind of felt like, I don't know what you're thinking. I mean, I get the, like, get it. It's tough, but it's way tougher on them than you. Trust me. Like, they've got to go figure out their bills and 
and what they're going to do, how they're going to tell their spouse, they've got to now deal with the. I mean, if anybody's been fired, and I've not been fired, mm-hmm. but I've left a situation where one of us was leaving in the room, you know, and put it that way, a little bit of a knockdown drag out, and you feel terrible for days, days. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you got to figure out, uh, what am I going to do? I got to call this person. And I, and I guess that's a little bit of a judgment where you'd have to go, well, if you are that quick to post a photo to LinkedIn that you should know is not going to go well, what other bad decisions are you making? You look at Fast, right? Fast is the big story three months ago. And, and you know, they blew through, what, $160 million in 10 months, 12 months? Only had a half a million in monthly billing. And, and I, I started to read it. And I'm like, well, that's just stupid. I mean... Because VCs, who I don't sit down and pitch VCs, never have, you know, and, and I don't think I ever will. Maybe I will. I don't know. It's not on my list of things to do. It's a lot of pressure to go do that, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. It's just like a sales funnel, except you're going to get money so the company can live on. Well, everybody has this perception that, oh, you just go get the money, right? Pete, you just go get us our Series A, then we go to BCD and then we're IPO, right? And you're looking at them going, A is going to last us 12 to 18 months, and we have to remain pretty much not that profitable if we want to look good to the series b because if we have too much room then they're saying you're not spending enough so now you've got the pressure of now i need to spend now i need to hire and i need to burn through the cash and if this doesn't work out guess what unless i'm adding newman from WeWork, there's nothing left for you either at the end of the day yeah we watched we crashed we also watched the dropout shocking and i by the way i've raised a lot of money i've pitched vcs for years and and you're right. There's different pressures, right? It is, uh, it is a funnel. You pitch to a lot. Very few give you money. And then I've been in a situation where we couldn't live up to the hype. We couldn't live up to the post-money valuation fast enough. And then at some point, and there's no predictable way to define it, you go from having to spend money to having to make money. And if you haven't built a business that can do that, it gets pretty scary pretty quick. Well, there's the scale, right? So uh, what is the same? The SaaS companies don't, they aren't really profitable until month 18 a lot of times. At least. So if you have a lifetime value that's 24 months, you're six months of profitability. Could be 20 months. I've seen out, I think when outreach was like a 20 months to profitability. Well, when people sign an annual contract, you now have the pressure of CX retaining them for year two in hopes that you're profitable. And that curve that I've seen when I'm studying so much is like that, that scared me to your point because I went... How does that happen? Does it just magically scale? But a really good CEO and operator is going to look at that and go to their CRO and kind of time it and CX and go, are we ready? And then that's a combination of a lot of upsells, a lot of retention, and a lot of new business. But now you're preserving margin, and now you're being measured probably on cash in bank and not cash on invoice, right, or whatever the the financing term is. Because that was fun to record the invoices, but now you can't count until it's in the bank. Yeah, I've got a good friend, built an incredibly successful SaaS business, took no outside capital, had a $15 million on credit he never used, and they built an average lifetime, life of a customer was 10 years. They kept their customers for 10 years. And they built a very sticky product, just brilliant. And they took their ACV, their average customer value from annual customer value from like 500 bucks a month to, I want to say like 4,000 by adding products and services. Actually, yeah, a month. And what they did is they they got to a point where they captured so much market share and then they took in an $80 million private equity deal. And the CEO is a good friend of mine. He's like, we're having lunch. He's like, I, I'm nervous because he knows I know I know what's going to happen. If I take this money, he goes, I'll take a little off the table, but I will lose control of my company. And I said, well, yes, you will. And you have to be comfortable that you, you literally have to say to yourself, if I take this money off the table and everything goes south, can I live with what I just did? Can, can that be enough that I could go do this again? 
if the answer is yes, then you're comfortable. But if you're going to lament and stress over this rest of your life, and I said, why are you taking the money? He said, we got together as a team and realized we haven't even scratched the surface of our, our available market. And we can use this money to roll up these 16 services. We've already identified the companies and layer their technology in and build more stickiness and more life. And we actually know exactly how much it costs to obtain a customer. And we know exactly how to upsell them. They've, they'd, they'd experimented with 25 different sales models, internal, external, outsourced, insourced, you name it, all sorts of crazy things. And they took that money and they did the acquisitions. And then they sold the company five years later for a ridiculous amount of money. And it just sold again, just at its second private equity flip. But two incredibly solid operators, really into the data, really understood their customers and not sexy. There was no sexiness to what they did, but they found a problem and they solved it. That's usually what works. Yeah. Now, the problem, I'm doing math because as a CRO, you're naturally going. So you're telling me they went from 500 to 4,000. Over the lifetime of 10 years, that is, that's a half a million bucks. Oh yeah, per customer. Yeah, that's good. That's a, I think most people would want to learn more about that. Now you also brought up something interesting. So this is going to further prove I'm not a good CEO or a good decision maker. Just so you know, so I'm really into just blasting myself. My first consulting gig, we sold that 168 million dollars worth of medical equipment during COVID. They hired me as a consultant. I said I'll come on in. We hired a bunch of people. When it was time to go, they got acquired by a company out of California. They said, Steve, we want you to come on full time. We'll give you a million bucks and a bunch of shares. And I went home and my wife says, what do you think? And I said, well, we'll probably use a million bucks, right? And she goes, yeah, but you wanted to start your own thing, right? And I was like, yeah, but, you know, and she goes, you need to stick with your dream. She goes, all you're going to do is go work for other people, be a part of a, a, a company of people you don't know, da, da, da. And I said, you're right. And I'm so glad. And then I came into title right before we made the transition to Cellex, right? And I don't want to obviously disclose anything there, but it was a good deal for Steve, which is good. I mean, that's the owner operator dream is you kind of walk out of something with something, but uh, we had a private equity firm flat fly to town and I was convinced. I said, that's where I'm going. VE. I can retain 33% ownership of the company. Da, da, da. For this guy and this guy alone, I was not prepared for that day. Now our team flew in too. They were very prepared. We went, went through and they really left the room saying, okay, Steve, here's your deal. I mean, it would have been a Bigger deal than the first one that I talked about, you know, seven, sure. seven digits and 33%. And I'm like, okay. And then they're like, by the way, you got to let go of 20 people and you have to let go of half of your customers because they're unprofitable. And I was like, I had some feel good to me. <laughs> My ego just went from like normal size to sure. just like this. And all of a sudden, if I had a really big ego and I was, I was smart and a prick, I'd have been like, yeah, give me the money. I'll let them go today. Sure. But I said, no, we can't let go of anybody. We got to, we got to, we got to take everybody over to this journey I'm going to. Now, the funny thing is, it's not funny, I guess. Well, it's funny. Five people quit within the first two weeks. No kidding. So I'm like, I laid it out on the table. And then we had 14% of the people I laid it on the table for quit the first week. And I wasn't bitter about it, but I'm like, interesting. Yeah. Because I thought that you're doing it for the people where really at that point, that was time for me to make a decision for me. 100%. And it's felt so selfish. I was like, man, I'll never live this one down. Everybody will hate me. Well, it all worked out just fine. But in hindsight, they didn't get it. They're going to do what they're going to do anyways. And yes. they were probably, when they heard about, you know, Celix and Title Joining, they're probably off and looking for the next job anyways, because most people don't like change. Yes. They didn't feel the way I did. They didn't have at stake what I did. So I was expecting them to, again, think like I think and protect them in an event where I wasn't protecting anybody. Like really... They could go, hey, thanks, Steve. I have another job in a new company. And they're very grateful, those people who stayed. But they don't need to be thankful. They could just say, I don't like this. 
what's in it for me, Steve? And I go, well, you know, different name. There's some software platform. It's great. And they go, but I don't like that. And so it's really hard because then you're like, wait, I'm making decisions that my employees who I fought for don't even like. And then you got to go, I get it. This is why a good CEO is going to be able to be a little bit more thick skin and go, I'm a business person first and foremost. And my job is to look out for the company and make sure we're profitable, make sure we have a good culture, make sure we're this. But at the end of the day, like I never led with cash flow and profitability at the front and center. I led with revenue and more revenue and addicted to growth, death by growth, all those things experienced little, little tiny paper cuts for about a year with all that enough to say, I pay attention to that. Now I pay attention to that shit big time. You've touched on a couple of things I find interesting. And I have not had this conversation with anybody who's been in, in a C role before. And by the way, it's all over LinkedIn right now with any pending doom in the economy, people are laying people off and just getting roasted for it. Right. Everybody, well, why are you laying people off? That's so cruel. That should be your last thing to do. This gets back to our very first part of the podcast is, well, that's interesting, calling in from left field, but you aren't sitting in the C-suite with the same decisions these people have. Because guess what? That CEO's only job, and you may forget this, people. They have one job, and I learned this very early on from one of my venture capital partners. You have one job, and that's to keep the business flowing. You keep the doors open. That is your only job. If the company folds... Yeah, you could have ping pong tables and kept everybody employed, but there's no company. So you describe the decision you had to make, right? Do I take the money, do some layoffs, let some customers go? That's not an uncommon situation in an acquisition discussion. It's just diligence. It's just proper diligence. And there are people whose job it is to make sure that that shit happens. Next time it happens with you and you have an opportunity like that, you'll you'll be a little bit wiser, you'll be prepared for the discussion. Because I've been in those situations where you say, all right, well, let's talk about this. What's the objection? What are you trying to accomplish by letting these people go? Is it because those roles are redundant? You have somebody else in that position in another company, you're going to merge them. I get that. Redundancy happens. Okay. Is it because you think they're not performing or whatever? So let's understand what that looks like. And if the answer is still, they've got to go, and I've been part of those, it comes down to how do we handle it? How do we treat them? How do we set them up for success? How do we communicate it? And how do we give them a runway? Because yes, if it makes business sense, it's my job to do it. It's hard. And again, don't need to be a dick about it, but let's not so like this and say, well, just because it doesn't feel good, we shouldn't do it. And the other thing is unprofitable customers. That's always hard for someone who starts a company, right? It's so hard because that customer was there with me early and I know I only make like one point of margin on they it. They believed in me. Exactly. <laughs> but you know what though? It is so liberating when you take that out of your CX role, right? Like I know we're struggling to support this customer. And by the way, when I've done that, I've picked up the phone and called all of them and said, hey, look, this is what's happening. This is what we're doing. It just doesn't make sense for us to do this. And I hope you understand. I'm happy to give you a license for the next 60 days until you can transition. What can our team do to help you port the data? Whatever it might be. Don't want to leave you hanging. Unless someone has started their own company, quote unquote, birthed the baby, they don't understand. And when I left my startup, after we, we merged, I merged my company with another company, it's still going. It's doing great. It was so hard for me. Ask my wife. I lost sleep for three months, literally grinding my teeth at night because I built this company. And after the merger, it wasn't going to be the same company. And I stayed for six months and left. And it was time. I'd been there almost 10 years. I'd lost some of the passion. It became a job. It became hard and it wasn't the same. So I don't know that people can understand unless they've walked in those shoes as you have. Well, it's, uh, gosh, you, you, you brought me to this thing about addicted to feeling good. We, we, we as humans like to feel good, right? 
I think we look at these people and go, don't you have a heart? You're letting people go, don't you have a soul? And they're like, well, I like to feel good too. I'm a human being just like you. I just am really good at making decisions and taking the emotion out of it. And then, of course, you get into the argument of, you know, this is something where my wife and I have talked about because our house is very, very pro-female because we have three of them, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about um, how people are told, for example, you know, let's take a, a female leader, right? Mm-hmm. And we're telling people at work, like, don't think, don't think emotionally, like, think logically on this one. And it's interesting because you hear that if you listen close enough, people are like, I want you to not think emotionally about this. And, and she goes, as women, you get it a lot because by nature, they tend to be more emotional in some instances, uh, more nurturing quantities. It's just kind of what it is, you know? Sure. And uh, she said it's, it makes her so enraged when she hears that because she said, I'm not really emotional. She goes, I might go home and cry about something that happened to my kids or cry with them. She goes, at work, though, I show up. It's a job. It's professional. I know my sole initiative that day is not to make somebody feel good. It's to make the company money or save them money. And if I do good things, that should be happening. And if it's a good thing and that doesn't happen, I need to minimize the amount of those good things I do, i.e., oh, I had a good conversation with Pete today. It took a half hour. Didn't make any money. Didn't plan on it. Great. Well worth the time, right? And you start to go down a CEO's list of priorities and the, the error that they can have in a day on making good decisions or having too many feel-good conversations, it will carry you away from the business uh, podcast, LinkedIn, go down the list. And pretty soon you're like, I'm an influencer on LinkedIn. And I'm not, I'm not using myself in this example. I could be very easily put in the influencer bucket. The difference is, is I have no money to gain off of selling you something, Pete. I am working for a company, so I'm not sitting there selling you an ebook. I'm not selling you a 9.99 sell your way to happiness book, right? I'm trying to make your business better and I get paid when I do that. And so I don't want to lump myself in there and never never really want to, but at some point in time I think we all got to look at CEOs and COOs and go, "You know what? If we are not willing to act like it's our, our own company and be there on a Friday night when Pete's doing the loading the paper, I also can't say that I feel a certain way if I'm let go or not because I'm voluntarily saying it's not my decision. It's not my department. It's not my not my problem. You know, it's, it's interesting. You mentioned some of the traits your wife brings to the table. We have the same discussion at my house. My wife is a compassionate, caregiving, emotional human being, without a doubt. She has a switch, though, where I see this, man, if she was running a business, it would be very interesting to watch what she does. She runs our house, by the way. She's, she's the chief operating officer of our house, without a doubt. I'll tell you a quick, funny story. She wanted a, a glass screen door. We had sold our home when I started my company a few years ago, and rented a townhome near where her mother is. My wife became her mother's caregiver. So we rented a townhome a mile away so she could be there every day. It was dark. It was a middle unit. So she goes, I want a glass screen door in the front of the house. So it lets light in. And she was doggone right. She goes, I'm going to get our landlord to pay for that. I said, all right. She did. She got him to pay for it. They delivered the door. She ordered the door from Lowe's, gave them the color code and everything. It had to be approved by the condo association, gave them the right code. They dropped the door off. My dad's visiting that weekend. My dad's a handyman. So I said to my dad, well, let's put the door on. It's like, no problem. My wife, my mom go out gallivanting, do whatever. My dad and I put the door on. My wife pulls up and goes, that's the wrong damn color. <laughs> you painted it the wrong color? We just spent six hours putting this door up. She goes, that's the wrong color. We're going to have to replace it. She goes, I'm going to Lowe's. They sent us the wrong door. And I go, Lowe's is going to go, you should have checked the color before you put it on your house. But that didn't happen because if we'd have taken it out of the box and you were home, honey, we'd have known it was the wrong color. We, my dad and I don't know what the right color is. We just put the door up. She goes to Lowe's and I'm thinking, there is no way this is going to happen. I'm in the back shopping for something. My wife's up at the customer service counter. I'm in the back by the door section. The guy at the door section gets a phone call from the front desk. He goes, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> I'll do it. Yeah. He goes, he goes, he's standing right here. 
Uh huh. He hangs the phone up. He goes, "You're getting a new door," and he goes, "God bless you." <laughs> she was not leaving without a new door, and they came out and removed the other one and put the other one up for free. Okay, this is this is going to be a me too. But the, for those listeners out there, if you have a partner who's like this, um, you'll appreciate this. So we had uh, we're wrapping up an eight month home remodel. My wife steered the whole damn ship on it. Sure. And I've been made made feel uh, rightfully so guilty about it a few times. And I've tried to pick up the weight. And she goes, Steve, can you be home for when the tub's delivered Monday? And I said, that big, big tub that you said that's going to fit me and everything, it's like 72 inches long. I'm like, yeah, I'll be there. And so she said, you know what, let me go. And I was like, I got it. You want to make sure it's going well and kind of look over the everything. Well, the tub was the wrong color. It's 900 pounds. And it was delivered by this place. And she goes, Steve, we can't have the appraiser come because if we don't have a tub here, it won't appraise and match the appraisal. And that tub's worth, you know, almost 10, 10 grand or whatever some stupid big tub is. But it was important to her. Right. I mean, we put, we got the damn tub for her with a window looking out on the whatever for her. Sure. Because that's what we wanted. I mean, humans do that, right? So she had everybody doing everything. So the tub was removed. A new one was ordered. The right color that will be here in a week when the first one took eight months. And I said, I don't know what you did, but you do it every goddamn time. Pardon my French. And. It's amazing. I'd sit there and be like, it's okay. It's okay. We're fine. You're the same way. I'm like, there's battles I pick. That's not a battle I would have picked. I've been like, you know, yeah, it was probably on us. We should. And she's like, no. And I, I love that about her. And she, by the way, we got in the car and my parents were with me and she just looked at me like this. And I said, all right, golf clap, golf clap, babe. You get it. <laughs> They're the CEOs, the COOs. And uh, thank God, man, because I think um, I think there's something to that, right? And maybe it's during the day you're you're asserting yourself in ways where she's doing the same thing and you come home and she just knows that you don't got it in you or it's just not in you by nature to, to do those things. My wife will tell you too is I'm working on it. Like I am the guy and I didn't have a, you know, I was a single mom growing up. So like she would have, I joke with her, you always had a boyfriend to fix stuff because she, you know, she'd date a guy for a year and a half and he was really nice and yeah, and so I say I see what you were doing now. You, you like they would fix stuff. They wouldn't teach me because I didn't know them that well. And a couple would be like, "Hey, Tiger, come over here." And I'm like, "Go screw yourself," <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Don't touch me. I don't like you. Get away from my mom. And um, I don't like fixing stuff. Like it's interesting. I will gladly, I'll gladly fix a problem in a CRM that's so complex. People go, "How'd you do that?" And I'm like, "It's my thing." If you said, "Steve, go hang up a door," I'd say, "A door." Oh God, Pete! Six hours, six hours of my time—a door, a bed frame. Oh God! Like, and my wife will be like, "You are something else." She goes, "For someone who does so much with your brain all day, you come home and you got to lift a hammer and you start whining." I'm like, "I work on it." You're right. As long as you understand your own human nature, it's funny. We moved into a house uh, about a year and a half ago, and I took a few weeks to to do the project list. Right when you move into a house, there's all sorts of things you want to do: hang, build, change, whatever. I could disappear, Steve, from 6.30 a.m. with my to-do list until 6 o'clock at night by myself with the list and be completely happy. Get out the tools, throw a little music on, and I could disappear in any project, and it's my happy place. And I get that kind of from my dad, I think. That was how he was wired. But like you, there are things at work that I know I need to do, and it's all the energy I can do to get up to take on that particular task or have or, or maintain the attention span through it. And I think I'm a little bit better realizing what I really suck at <laughs> and trying to address it. But uh, yeah, it is it is funny how we're... Run to what you're good at, right? So instead of getting good at those, it's almost that sign that says, hey, I, I like this. I don't like that. So let me find someone else who likes doing that. That's exactly right. If you can find someone in your team that, that addresses that... I'll trade them time for money. Absolutely trade time for money. No question about it. So... 
I've seen a couple of posts where you've got into sales X revenues, like you're going to finish the year, you know, next year at like 24 million or this year, 24, it grew to hundred million. Is that still on track? It's remarkable to me. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for bringing it up because it reminds me, and we just did our forecast. So we're going to bring on, um, we're going to take four of our internal people and uh, September 1st, they're going to be on the selling team, right? So they'll be on the team that um, I'm currently overseeing with revenue and they're going to take two people from outside. So I spent the first 45 days really looking at our modeling uh, for scalability. And, and we also looked at Pete, who is a really good fit as a customer because of the model, we need that to work. And so, yeah, we're, we're actually on track. We've got a big month to hit this month, but yeah, crescendos up and right around uh, end of November, early December, we should be above that run rate and then headed towards the next one. Now it's 2 million a month, 24 million a year, but we don't do monthly billing. So every month we're starting over. Like it's, it's a new lift every month. So we're not doing the run. We will transition into a more of a monthly model once we're stable with cash, which again, I think it's the right thing to do. And then any advice to an early stage founder? Yeah, pull as much cash forward as you can. Yeah, pull your cash forward in 12-month contracts. Yep, absolutely. You'll never get it if you don't ask for it. 100%. And, and by the way, there are, there are markets that pay for it. So quick side story, Steve and I talked this morning because my company is considering using CellX and I did it only because of the content you post, right? You're not you're not selling me eBooks. You're, you talk about what you do every day. So it worked. I went through the online application. You showed me the platform this morning. I'm a software SaaS guy. I was floored. I told my team afterwards, floored by this product. And I, I described it to one of my folks. I said, if you were sitting around a table and said, if we could build X to do Y this easily, whatever X and Y were, they did that. They literally did it. Like You were like, well, I need... it's there. It's there. It's there. And I, I think you guys are honest. I don't know how every company who has an SDR, BDR motion, doesn't try this. It's brilliant. I think what we're finding is that that, that's, that is kind of what's happening. And, and it comes in little pockets. Like we, we're doing demand gen. And of course, you know, we all think it should work right away. And everybody should care who you are. And, sure. and I got uh, uh, Darren McKee, who's like, uh, he's a guy who posts, I don't know Darren, and he's a very positive guy. And and uh, I see him on LinkedIn, and all of a sudden he posted me up today. Um, he said, yeah, I posted about gig economy workers. They skill economy, and someone tagged you and sell us. He goes, is that what you guys are doing? I said, yeah, our BDRs are, are 1099, right? So they're not W-2 employees. And he goes, I've got 200 people in the chat room right now who are freaking out about this. He goes, because we haven't heard about it before. And, and there's all these people looking for jobs. I'm like, yeah, I know. And we're like, we want to put them to work, and they'll be making money day one, you know, and They'll be making more money if they just do what they say they'll do than they would have ever made as a W-2. They have the freedom. They can travel. It's probably the exact freedom they were looking for. And the first thing a lot of these people, like the people who run to us know it and they run to it and go, I don't care. I'll make it work. I'm going to make it work. And I go, great. The other people go, man, I could use a base salary. I said, we're not doing, we give you a stipend, right? So we give our, our XDRs, um, depending on their workload, uh, you know, a grand to a couple of grand to, at a bare minimum, Pete, you walk in feeling good that you can maybe pay half your mortgage that month or something. You got to earn the rest, but we pay them out in real time. And so they're not going to wait till the end of the month. If they set an appointment with Pete and Pete shows up on Thursday, they get paid by Friday. Friday p.m., they got money in the bank. And if they did it again for Friday, they get paid again Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. And we paid someone 28 times last month. And so that experience of really how people want it today, I think a lot of companies in B2B especially, they got to go, I see what people want because they're doing it as consumers, right? So if I want to make it easy to do business with me and I want to make it easy to work for me and I want to get paid when I perform and I want to get paid daily, I think the companies that don't adjust a little bit to that over time and a lot more over a lot of time are going to really be looking back at this going, 
we missed the boat on some talent that was never going to work for us unless we did the things that they wanted because we were so risk adverse we couldn't give up the control, the illusion of control I think we have by putting a W in front of the two. And I said, do they work any harder when, when they're W-2 when you're not looking than they do when they're 1099? The answer is no. You know, what struck me about the platform and just the concept in general is this is what you do, right? We're not a sales-driven or My company is not a sales-driven organization. We're a marketing-driven organization. We have a side of the business that's B2B that needs to be sales-driven, but we don't have any expertise. And I thought about recruiting and hiring someone into this role. And what really was the catch for me is coaching them training them and managing the process the way you guys are. We don't have anybody that can do it. So I will pay the premium to have you guys do that for me. And that's gig economy stuff. It's it's outsourcing what I'll call non-core value aspects of your business to the best practice people out there. And again, that's not a new concept. But you said something earlier in the podcast that was interesting. If you and Dean sit down and Dean says, hey, Steve, slow growth a little bit here. We got we got to shore up some of the in-house processes to make sure that works. I was imagining paying someone 28 days. There's got to be a system in place for that to happen, to account for it, to manage it, to keep those people coming back as your XDRs because they know that check's going to be there the next day. That process has to be in place and scalable or something breaks. If we don't need revenue at the same apex that we're bringing on people, you're right. We're going to have brand reputation damage. We're going to have a bad, you know, hey, I signed up. I had nobody to work for. And so revenue's got the pressure. And I say, don't slow down. Trust me. We like the pressure. Like we got to go get clients. And and uh, when you trust me, one of the best sales things you can get is when you get a thousand people working for you in your platform, they each know about a thousand people. And then you think of that power of LinkedIn and just switching that name to Celex. People are like, what the heck? Everybody I know is going to work for this company called Celex. Yeah. And then by that time, the next company to innovate, which we're already seeing it happen where they're going, oh, me too. And I go, great. Let's make it a better place. They're going to be a year or two behind you. And there's going to be a disruptor to come up. And, and I can't wait till those people come because that's going to be fun when we have to make them move before they make their move and go, that's great, but we're already in the lab and this is what we're doing here and this is what we're doing here. It continually makes it better, more efficient, and it makes it better for everybody, especially the clients always win when there's competition and innovation. We're innovating because of them. It's good. They always win. And, and by the way, I love the fact that if I work with one of your SDRs, they've worked with 10 other companies this year. Yeah, and you can see who. They've seen 10 other ways to do it. They've seen 10 other pitches. They've seen 10 other value propositions. They've learned right? They're not doing this in a vacuum. They bring a whole bunch of experience to the table in an accelerated fashion. So we're excited, man. We're really excited. I'm excited for you. I'm glad I got to, to a little bit of a peek under the hood and uh, excited to see where it heads out. And I know you've got to go figure out where to put this bathtub. So I'm going to let you run because that's important. Yeah. Well, believe me, I, by the time I checked my text messages, cause I was talking like this, I'm like, Oh crap. Cause it was all documented for me, but I didn't looked at my phone yet. And so I heard all about it in a good way. And yes, I was part of the crew that helped dismantle the 900-pound tub back into the truck. <laughs> so, See, you know how to do home projects. Slept, slept like a baby pee. Demo day. Demo day. I love demo day. Steve, it's been a pleasure, buddy. Pleasure too. Thank you, Pete. It's been fantastic. I will uh, make sure that everybody can find you, not that they already haven't, on the program and uh, put all the contact information in the show notes. And uh, let's do this again. Sounds good, Pete. Thanks, everybody, for listening, Pete. You're a great host, my friend. Thank you. Appreciate it, buddy. Thanks for checking out Eating Crow. Like and subscribe so you never miss a video. 